You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. This is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. I'm joined by fellow a blog to watcher David Breden. Hey, David. Hey, Ariel. Hey, everyone. How's it going? So this is supposed to be the first show that introduces David as a character and our cast <laughs> on a blog to watch. And David is one of the characters that I've been on a lot of adventures on together. The yeah. last 13 years or so, all of us have gone to some pretty exotic places, done some exotic things, and met some interesting people. This show is going to be about some of the people, but you know what? If this is successful, is it is it fair to say that we have you know many shows worth of adventures to talk about? I think that's that's a fair fair assessment. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're not always glamorous. <laughs> no, no, that's the point. But we can talk about the people we've met. We can talk about adventurous places we've been, the crazy vehicles we've driven. So, yeah, I think they would add up for some some entertaining uh, podcast for sure. So this show, we're going to talk about some of the people. And before we started the show, you were worried. You're like, hey, Ariel, I don't want this to sound like we're like name dropping because there's a lot of that going on in our industry. And both David and I hate that. I think what's amazing about watches is that there's no one background that ends up liking them. Like there's artists and politicians and lawyers and scientists and actors and musicians and athletes athletes and like all these random people that legitimately enjoy watches maybe for different reasons that's true but it doesn't matter because they're still interested in wearing the same type of thing Mm. and so the cross-section of people that we've met i mean like where else would you meet at the same event an astronaut and a rapper (laughs) you know yeah so let's begin on our list and these are people that are watch lovers, I think. I think these are all actual watch lovers. Mm-hmm. All right. Who's who's someone? And this is not like a top 10. This is just like no. people that came to mind for the first of these conversations. David, right. who's, let's let's hear the first person. The first person on my list is uh, Sir Jackie Stewart. Oh. Who's, who's a three-time world champion Formula One driver. And if I'm not wrong, if I'm not mistaken, the longest standing Rolex testimony or Rolex brand ambassador, if you like. Yeah, yeah, they call them testimonies. Yes. Like an interviewee, a testimony with two E's at the end. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he joined the Rolex uh, company or the Rolex family or whatever. I don't like it when it's called a family. But he, he joined Rolex uh, back in the 1960s and has been a Rolex ambassador ever since. And I've, I've, I've had the, uh, the, the good fortune of, of meeting and, and, and chatting with Sir Jackie Stewart a few times, actually. At this point, and what you guys talk about? Um, I asked him about how to get started in racing. If you don't have all the money in the world, what is it that you know? How, how is it that you um, that you enter? How much money? Exactly do you need? like in the fifties when he got into it, right? No, I mean his, his <laughs> <laughs> he 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 is still um, teaching. You know, the newest generation, and he's still very much part of that world. Um, I met him at the, the Formula One race here in Budapest uh, uh, two years in a row. And one time long before that, and at the North Life at the Nürburgring, the famous racetrack, I was in the in the hotel by the racetrack, and I saw just that was the first time I ever saw him, and he was just 
walking into the like the breakfast area it was like 6 15 or 6 30 in the morning like super early and it was funny i had all all my breakfast in front of me and i didn't eat like at all i waited for him to finish his breakfast which is like half an hour but i didn't want to miss the moment when he's leaving and i didn't want to disturb him when he was having breakfast so he was leaving and i went there and i just said a few words and and uh, and all that and that was amazing and i didn't know at this point but years later we had this chance to uh, to talk a little bit about watches and cars and and he is just unbelievable he's super sharp he he's very honest he's very direct i mean why wouldn't he be and uh, and it was funny I'm not, I'm not sure if i if i meant to share this but i asked him like what is it like uh, working with rolex and because you know not many people have uh, you know um, a chance to say that what did he say and he said um, he he loves it because they are very very direct and very stable and uh, and there's just this mutual respect. And he told me that he was afford, um, offered um, bigger sums at some point in the past or whatever, and he always turned down all other watch which companies for like fifty years in a row because that's how much he enjoys uh, being part of Rolex. And in in his mind, Rolex is the best. And you know. Obviously, the brand testimony will say that. But when you've been with a brand for 50 years, I mean, I don't think there's anyone at Rolex HQ right now who's been with the brand for 50 years. So I think, you know, it could actually be an interesting thing to Yeah, I mean, he's basically ask. part of their, like, archive history department at this point. He know, he exactly. remembers so much. Exactly. And he was wearing a day date uh, on the Oyster bracelet. <laughs> and what was impressive about Jackie Stewart to you as a fan? Like, why was he so impressive? Like... You know what I mean? Like what he represents to you? The, the the calmness, the confidence, and just just being super open minded and 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 incredibly direct. Like none of the none of the acting, none of the who the hell you are, why the hell, why why are we even having this conversation? Uh, none of that. Uh, you know, I've been I've been watching Formula One for twenty something years, and I, he meets Formula One fans and Jackie Stewart fans all the time, constantly, like dozens or hundreds every single day. And to have this sort of energy and this sort of respect for his fans, even though I'm an absolute nobody in his eyes, because why would I? Why would I be anything else? Um, and to treat me with that sort of respect and open-mindedness, that that meant uh, uh, you know a whole lot to me. Yeah, I got to hang out with him as well during one of the Pebble Beach um, shows. That's also sponsored by Rolex, and he goes right. all the time. I found his son was there, which was kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Um, I found him to be, like you said, very sharp, very smart. Um, I remember thinking to myself, wanting to ask him, like, like Mr. Stewart, what is it that you do to stay so sharp at your age? I'd like to think that I could be that way when I'm your age as well. You know, like that's what comes like when you meet these amazing people. It's it's less about celebrating them. It's more like, what are your good habits, sir? I'd like to follow <laughs> along. Um, you know, maybe it is being a race car driver and having to train your brain to be so sharp all the time. Like, even if he's slow now compared to being how fast he was then, he's still pretty good. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, he definitely. I mean, he's a, he's a performer. He's an athlete. You know, he's... It's... I don't know. I mean, it's the same race car driver. Like, they're not given that much credit. These guys are sharp. They're really, mm-hmm. really sharp. You cannot be stupid in a race car driver. I've just never <laughs> met them. <laughs> and, and and one last thing, he's an a, an excellent diplomat. 
um, when we were sitting at this round table with like 10, 12 people there. And in any time when we were in like a group of people and the way he spoke about Rolex and the way he even, we, we, we did this walk through the, the, uh, the backstage, so to speak, of Formula One, where, where you have all these amazing motorhomes for all the different teams. And, you know, all these teams are obviously like very um, close competitors and all that. And he would just take us into all these places, like no, no badge, nothing. So one moment you're in Ferrari, the next moment you're at Mercedes. He had to learn something from the Swiss, right? Rolex had to teach him something. He just straight up just walked in there, like anywhere. Oh, okay, there is this like whatever we just go through. It, it was it was amazing, but the way he <laughs> treated all his guests and everyone at these teams and all that, he is he is not only sharp, but he's a really really amazing diplomat, and I think that's. If I don't want to speak for Rolex, but I think Rolex really enjoys uh, having such an amazing diplomat. I agree. You know, that's that's what's great because he's he's a paid you know ambassador, but he's mm-hmm. also a really good role model, and that's when it feels like it's done right. Yeah, exactly. Moving on. Okay, moving on. I was thinking about you know people that I met, and there's been a lot, and it's important also to say this is one of the first superlative shows names that people would recognize. And there was two individuals that I met that died in the last several years. And it was Kobe Bryant and Robin Williams. And, you know, these are people that meant a lot to so many people. For me, growing up with comedy and acting and things like that, Robin Williams was the bigger of the two, but I actually met Kobe more times. And I'll start with Kobe Bryant because, you know, (laughs) there's actually, I I wrote um, sort of a kind of a eulogistic article after his passing about some of the experience I had on a blog to watch. That's right. I can talk more about the stories. But, you know, I first encountered him as someone who was basically an investor um, in the watch industry because he had put money into the creation of a brand called Nubeo. He had wanted to participate in the the luxury space as an investor and as a business owner, not just like, hey, guys, I like watches. Um, When that fell apart, he became a Nublow brand ambassador and they made up was it, four watches for him or something like that. Um, and that is his legacy, right? In the watch space, he's, you know, has several watches to his name plus a brand. This is the unreleased watch, uh, the, hmm. the Nubeo Black Mom, but that actually never came out. So there's this mythical watch out there that was literally supposed to be the Kobe Bryant watch paid for partially by Kobe Bryant. It hasn't been produced yet. I mean, like, this is like a future marketing thing. Just some somebody's going to get the story in their lap and be like, I can produce the watch. I mean, imagine like basketball fans are going to go crazy. The unproduced Kobe Bryant luxury men's timepiece. Like, <laughs> and that's, 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 that's gold at the right time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the Hublot watches, which were, which were crazy. They were kind of crazy. And he was, he was a character. I remember uh, he came to some Hublot event in Napa Valley. And, you know, he had, he had some of his formative years in Italy, so we could speak intelligently about wine. And, you know, you just, you know, it's, it's nice to see that guy who presents himself from a marketing perspective as being this sort of aficionado. And he could wear the suit and pull it off and carry himself properly and talk about watches and talk about wines like a connoisseur, which I think you can agree we can't say for all of the ambassadors in the space who are supposed to be um, an authority on luxury. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's right. And and then he and then he, you know, has an untimely death. Um and then Robin Williams, sorry, I'm doing two people at once. I met him at an IWC event in San Francisco and I still live there. And 
Robin Williams, and this is sort of how IWC operated and how Richemont kind of still operates to a degree, is they find what they call friends of the brand. So they're like, oh, you're important in the world and you happen to like us. How about we be friends? We could give you some watches. You could show up at some of our events and meet some other cool people. And you're also into the... Richemont has this like little program because they have all these luxury brands if you need gifts and stuff like that. They made it like really appealing to be like a friend of the brand of Richemont. And so, you know, it was, it was just difficult for anyone to say no, there's really no reason. And so Robin Williams was asked to go to this event and he was having a good time. And IWC um, actually introduced me to him and we chatted for a little bit. And I remember he was wearing this particular watch. It was the Top Gun, the ceramic one, the first one. And I saw, I've seen him on magazine covers wearing the same watch. So it was like, it, it wasn't just one that IWC like strapped on his wrist to the door and then he gave back at the end of the night. Like that, that does happen. I'm not saying with mm-hmm. him because he's a real watch lover. And, um, you know, I mean, he was a genius at his craft I and mean, he took interest in me. And, and that was one of the most amazing things I found about the celebrities that have the most impact on you is they're the ones that for even that brief moment, they they connect with you in your eyes and they ask something about you. They make you feel important. And that's not everyone, but I think you and I have both had those experiences. And I, I do feel thankful to the watch industry for um, making those possible. They didn't set it up for me, but like that me and Robin Williams happened to be at the same event because we're both into this thing. Like that felt, it was sort of a validator. It's like, okay, Ariel, you could have done worse than watches. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that meeting and and just just being around these people, it's just even if we get to spend like 30 minutes or an hour or however long with them, it's you know, you carry that with you for for forever basically. It's such an impact. What do you feel when there's a celebrity out there and you just sort of like learn that maybe they like watches? Do they do they gain like an extra level of importance or credibility with you? <laughs> not <laughs> it depends on um no just just for liking watches not at all no Especially that's not because, enough no because you know it's like a, you know a lot of good and bad people like watches i don't I, you know it's, it's it's just not enough it's it's how they you know if you choose a hobby whether it's art or watches or cars or whatever um it's it's the things that you choose that define you as a person in some way in some superficial way at least um not the fact that you like them so I'm interested in what is it that they like, what is it that they don't like, and all that. Uh, I think I think that matters a little bit more uh, than just simply liking watches. So who's the next person that comes to mind um, that was impressive that you met? Mm, I I really enjoyed meeting someone who doesn't apparently like watches at all. Oh. Um, and uh, he, he is uh, Andy Wallace. He is the uh, the test driver for Bugatti. And uh, when I when I had the chance to visit the the Bugatti uh, manufacturer in Mols, Morsheim or Molsheim Morsheim in uh, in France, and he was there and and uh, he was the one you know just walking us around and, and showing us the cars and then taking us on on you know on on drives with the with the car and he he is just a hundred point zero zero percent car person he is a Le Mans driver obviously he's the factory test driver of Bugatti so he must know a thing or two about driving does he drink like motor oil cars. like how dedicated is he <laughs> I think so I mean I've not I have not <laughs> seen him do it but I think he does it and uh, and yeah I think you know 
because I'm I'm a, I'm a petrol head myself, you know, we were just talking about the car. I'm like, not a single word of our watches in any way, shape, or form. Um, but but it was it was just just fun because the way he talked about cars is the way I talk about watches. So you know, or or, or the way you talk about watches, you can you know people can ask you a question about a watch and then you answer and then you ask and they ask you a hundred other questions and then you answer all of those as well because you just <laughs> you are knowledgeable you love the topic and all that and and you love the subject and so this was in a way it was meeting ourselves in a car guy who, who has just achieved so much in in his field and i'm not saying we have achieved so much but we have put on a little bit of knowledge over these last year last number of years and so it was just it was just amazing to be sitting next to someone who I, whom I can ask anything and he knows the answer to. And it was supposed to be like a 15 minute test drive when we came back after like 35, 40 minutes because it, it was just I, I, I hope he was enjoying all these like super nerdy questions. Oh, so you were you were driving with him. Yeah, he was you, he was driving and, and I was sitting, I was writing shots. Okay, so what, what better way to have like a cool time with a car guy than to actually be driving in the process? You may have left he, that part out. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we were in the, we were in the Chiron, and he said, "Oh, it's going to be fifteen minutes because then we have all these other people to take out." But then, you know, once he realizes that, you know, like he has to say the same same thing for like 10, 15 times a day, and then when someone asks, like, "What's the you know secondary moment of inertia of this chassis?" Then he was like, "Oh, <laughs> let's nerd the hell out and and nerd out with it," and um, and that was that was just amazing. So forty five minutes later, when the the yeah, full tank ran like, out of gas, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was great. And um, um, yeah, and since then, unfortunately, you know, well, unfortunately or not, whatever, but um, Bugatti is no longer with Parmigiani. Parmigiani used to be the, the watch brand partner. Oh, they of split off officially? Yeah, and the funny thing is... I didn't see the press release about that one. Yeah, exactly. Well, we, we never received the press release on bad news, but um, yeah, that's what <laughs> happened. And the, and the funny thing was, or the interesting thing was, that Parmesan used to be the longest-standing uh, partner brand of Bugatti, um, which was which which is kind of interesting because you would think, you know, a brand like Bugatti has all these different like OEMs and manufacturers and brands and stuff just lining up. I don't know. Maybe no. Bugatti is like still really underground. Like, I know it sounds, but like if you've been to like even mainstream car guys, you bring up Bugatti, they only vaguely know what you're talking about. That's true, but They're you know, very rare. Yeah, but what luxury brand would say no to a pool of like seventy or eighty new Bugatti customers every year? Because that's how many they sell a year. You know, that's that's just the reach. I know, but get. I'm just saying, like, you compare them versus like the awareness of like maybe even Lamborghini. It's like completely different. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But the clientele is different as well. So yeah, I mean, look, anyway, it's, the, it's the highest end of the Volkswagen Group, right? The absolute yeah. highest end. Or the highest end of cars, you know, generally speaking. If you, well, you know, look, obviously there's Pagani and others. Yeah. Look, if you yeah. want to spend a lot on a luxury item, trust me, someone will find a way. Yeah, I mean, they do, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, Parmigiani made some really cool Bugatti watches, to be, to be fair, you know, like really odd designs and odd movements and all that. So they, they took they were this weird, seriously. I'll give them that. Yeah. They exactly. did take it seriously. I mean, they were, they were basically the Parmigiani version of the driver's watch. I don't know that everybody, anybody ever actually wanted a driver's watch, but if you wanted the best driver's watch money can buy, Parmigiani made it for you. Yeah, exactly. For like six-figure prices. All right, moving on. So I remember just going yeah. on to car people. I hadn't thought about this person until um, you started going on about yeah. uh, these, these automotive heroes. And there's actually been a few of them, but the person I'm thinking about is Peter Brock, who I met. Mm -hmm. 
um, through Bama Massier because they made a, a watch uh, with him with mm. for the car. And it was the uh, the Shelby Daytona. And so this was the designer that worked with Carol Shelby on other cars in the Daytona. And there was a there was a movie that just came out recently. I actually didn't see it. It was Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. It had Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Um, apparently it wasn't that great of a movie. It was, I don't know, I even know how they sort of created the plot out of it. But the idea was that there was this there's automotive race that the the Europeans always beat everyone else. Ferrari was the winner. And Shelby and his team came in, uh, being funded by Ford, saying we think we can we can build something that beats it, and they ended up making the Shelby Daytona. And so I, I sat with with Peter Brock, who's a designer, long time, such a great guy to chat with, and we were talking about this whole concept about how when people see new designs for the first time, they immediately hate it, and only mm. over time does it become something that people like and. He was sitting there telling me the Shelby Daytona. He's like, look, all these people are calling this thing a design icon. Everyone's mm. saying how beautiful it was. He's like, everyone at the time thought it was ugly and had nothing but bad things to say about it. Interesting. And he knew watches well enough to understand. It's like the same thing in watches. You see a new design and everyone just talks crap about it like mm. incessantly because they're not familiar with it. Flash forward a few years and all of a sudden, it's sort of been worn around and yeah. it's on someone's wrist. So like that guy doesn't look like a schmuck for wearing it. Maybe this isn't so bad. And all of a sudden, it becomes a design icon. The Rolex, the the Paul Newman Daytona, considered mm. ugly. The yeah. the Audemars Piguet Royal Oak, when it first came out, considered ugly. So many of these watches are considered ugly when they first come out. We look at it in retrospect; it becomes more interesting. And that was the case with the car. And it was so amazing to have this very academic um, designer who's done more than just been a designer with his life. He, he took his career in a lot of different directions and developed as a professional and said, there's this, this hard, fast rule about design. And this weird thing you've seen where people are really hostile to new designs. Yeah, like, like I'm one of the weird people that's open-minded to new designs. So I've never been able to become familiar with the mentality. And that is people don't know how to evaluate new things if they're not given tools of evaluation. Most consumers are looking for that, that influencer, that authority. Be like, okay, what does he or she think? Then I'll base my opinion on that. Right. And I think, yeah. It blew my mind that we had this conversation. Never thought it would be there. It was supposed to be at the marketing relationship between you know, him and Bama Massier. And, and I didn't even talk to their people at all the entire meeting. I just chatted with him. And I thank them for you know, basically introducing us. Yeah, um, yeah, that was an amazing meeting. I was there as well, and that was. Oh yeah, really you were there. You were privilege. shooting that watch. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> what? I remember you were shooting a watch in the corner. You said like you were kind of bored. You had nothing to do, so you just took forever to shoot this watch. Yeah, but I was listening, and then we recorded something uh, with him as well. If you yeah, remember. we did. We did. Okay, who's who's next on our on our short list of cool people we met? Um, because it could be a long list. It could be, but we're trying to it make it could short. Be. Uh, yeah, I, I have just two more people, and only one of those is, is, a, is another car guy. <laughs> um, and this one is Flavio Manzoni. He's the uh, the the uh, the design director of Ferrari, and uh, he and basically his team. Uh, Are you a car mm, guy, David? Yeah, apparently. Yes. <laughs> in retrospect, uh, looking back at this discussion. Yeah, in the, they designed the tech frame for Hublot. And that, that was interesting. Uh, also, well, we spoke a little bit more about cars and watches, but it was interesting to see because he actually had like a larger team of Ferrari uh, designers working on that. So it's not just 
Manzoni himself, but um, his team. And from what I could see from their eyes is that they really enjoyed this extra, like, uh, you know, um, project. And obviously these are designers and engineers who have been, you know, making these projects, you know, since high school, but definitely university during their studies where you have to prove that you're a good designer and you can make this or that or whatever. And, and to do something that actually gets made and gets made by a very capable manufacturer because Hublot makes those cases and those movements uh, and near, near Geneva to create something that's going to end up on people's wrists. People who have paid six-figure prices for such a watch, such a watch uh, made this um, uh, a project that was all the more real. You know, it was not a concept or anything like that. It had to be designed. It had to be something that can be manufactured and that can be worn around. And so they, they really enjoyed the project, apparently. And, and that was just a cool meeting to meet someone who's been designing some very famous cars, cars that you don't even know that he designed, but then he actually did. What so, did you and, learn about how these yeah. things get designed? You met the designer and yeah. like, what is it, was it, what is it that allows these people to design these cars that are so like demonstrably better than a lot of what else comes out there? Or maybe the better question is what are the, what are the bad designers doing wrong? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I asked the, uh, Flavio Manzoni, what is it? What is it that's that's difficult about car design? And he 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 looked up. He he, he was thinking for like two seconds. He sighed, and then he looked at me and he said everything. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, that's sort of what I was expecting. But that's the point because it's because everything is hard about car design, especially these days. Because you know, 40, 50 years ago, it was the manufacturing technology that was a bottleneck because you couldn't shape metal in different ways. You couldn't shape glass in different ways, uh, you know, like you can today. So manufacturing a car is easier today, even in low quantities, but you have to meet so many more regulations that are so much more strict than they ever Aww, used to be. Safety. Yeah, safety is boring, uh-huh. especially when when you're making like you know eight thousand cars or ten thousand cars, like like uh, like these companies do sometimes. So anyway, he said everything. And to answer your question, I think you know it's it's just about compromises and how how you can smart your way around these compromises that you know to to still create something that resonates that that is that is good design. And then there's there are all these cliches of you know Italian design and and you know, soul and passion and all that. But you can really see that these people are living and breathing these things. And uh, and that certainly helps. Plus, when you have on your, <laughs> on your the, the weight on your shoulder that you're designing a Ferrari and you look back at the history of Ferrari design, then, you know, that really makes you, uh, you know, want to do a good job. Let's back up a second here. Let's focus a little bit more on why is it that Ferrari is important to you. I get this Ferrari, I guess it's well known, but we started the show off talking about how we didn't want to name drop um, <clears throat> And people know Ferrari as being, you know, flashy Italian sports yeah. car. It's it's different um, for you, right? It's not just that. What what does it represent that made you so impressed with being around these people? It's hopefully more than just the popularity of the Ferrari name and the price of the cars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if 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 this guy designed the Fiat Five Hundred, I would still be, you know, you know, he, it would have been the same amazing discussion if we'd just be talking about a Fiat and not a Ferrari. So. Um, it's it's the way these people approach problems. It's the way that um, you know they have all this weight on their shoulders, and then they still go and and do do a really great job. Even though I mean, obviously they are not hard surgeons or anything like that. But then again, in their trades, you know, you have all the press, you have all the people, all the you know, from four year olds all the way to one hundred and four year olds. Everyone is looking at the new Ferrari. Everyone, 
and it's one of the best known brands in the world. So if you mess it up or whatever, people won't care that it's a new EU regulation or a US you know, crash or pedestrian safety regulation. If it looks like crap, it still looks like crap. And so the way they work around these issues is, is what makes their job so difficult and why I respect what is it that they do. It's true. Most people don't know that if it were up to like car regulators, cars would look horrible and ugly. Yeah, and they already are doing that. So and there's a and there's a fight. It's like for you and I, it's like totally granted. It's like, of course, cars need to be beautiful. Yeah. But in a lot of sort of the more efficient way of thinking, those industries, like in tech, until recently, beauty was never part of the equation. You mm. know what I mean? It needed to like last and work and fit its function, like was supposed to be beautiful. True. If you start out focusing on watches and then expand your horizon to other things like cars and things like that, the sort of idea that something needs to be great looking is, is for, you take it for granted. And so when you look at other industries where that's not the default, it's like you're so confused. Like when I started getting into smartwatches, it like was never really important. Everyone was like, so it needs to be fashionable and somebody wants to feel sexy when they wear it. We don't understand this. Yeah. Like they had to learn that after they learn how to like, you know, put a battery and a screen and an antenna together and make sure it all works properly. Like, yeah. And then the watch industry is the total opposite. It's got to look great mm. first. Okay. Then afterwards you can make it work. Yeah. And maybe read the time on it. Maybe. <laughs> that's a good point, actually. Yeah. That's, uh, that's so true. Anyway, it, it, at least we don't have such regulations in watch design. We have other limitations in terms of size and variability and legibility and, and all that. But those have been roughly the same, if not, you know, even more liberal these days than they used to be, because now you can make a 45 millimeter watch and or a 48 millimeter watch and justify the size by a crazy movement. Whereas, you know, 50 years ago, you couldn't do that. Okay. So speaking of the thrill of motorsports and stuff like that, I remember meeting Brad Pitt a while ago. Again, a big name, but a legitimate watch guy, like really into watches, known for being into watches, seen wearing a whole variety of watches over the years. And during the meeting that we were all in together, the thing he got excited about the most was MotoGP, which is motorcycle racing. Really? Yeah. Oh. And, you know, we've met, you know, I think, I think Steve McQueen is probably the most famous of the Hollywood people that sort of got sucked into the world of racing and stuff like that. There's this incredible sex appeal, not just to being in the car world, but the racing world. It's like this weird ultimate macho thing. And it just draws in so many people. There's like Patrick Dempsey. That's a perfect example. Mm. Goes from, you know, Hollywood actor, the race car driver. Like yeah. you never see it happen the other way around. And you never see like actor being like, okay, and they're going to go play pro baseball now. Never happens. But motorsports, yes. I think, I think Brad Pitt would have been more than happy being like, you know what? Screw it all. I'm going to go race motorcycle. Yeah, exactly. Brad Pitt is an ambassador of Breitling. That's the newest um, relationship he has in the watch industry. He's sort of been a free agent for the most part, though he has had some relationships. Brad Pitt is, you know, a, a Hollywood legend at this point. He's in his mid-50s. He cares about his legacy. That's super, super important to him. But, you know, he's still, in the very traditional sense, like um, like a sex figure in in Hollywood and around the world, which means that he has this huge awareness with men and women. You know, uh, the movie came out recently, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he definitely pay, plays that type of character. And, you know, he's one of the biggest draws to the box office because, again, he's able to attract a male and female audience, which is great. And he's, and he's a legitimately cool guy. And so 
when he makes the decision, like, I'm going to work with Breitling, it's never for money. It's always some bigger thing, like, do I feel comfortable? Do they, you know, is this the type of brand I want to be associated with? And a lot of the onus is on Breitling. So George Kern, who is the CEO of Breitling right now, he can't just like call, you know, call Brad Pitt's people and be like, listen, we'd really like you for a deal. Like, it's a lot of convincing, especially if you don't want to pay, you know, what a lot of these celebrities are worth. Like, you know, these are watch brands. They're not, you know, they're not like Nike. They can't afford these massive multi, multi million dollar deals that would just it would bankrupt them. They're just, they're just, they're just watch companies. They're not dealing in such high volumes and things like that. Mm. And so to say that Breitling has Brad Pitt as an ambassador is a, a very authentic statement about their relationship. And it also is interesting because Brad Pitt likes these things. It's a it's a vehicle for him to express to the world. I'm into this aficionado ship. I'm into this, these, these watches and things like that. I like this type of thing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's great to meet someone so human like him because he is a human being. Um, but at the same time, he's this mythical character to so many people. Mm. And again, you know, if it wasn't for the watch industry, you know, even if I came in as some type of like, I don't know, entertainment reporter, like, you know, we've been, a, we've been to these red carpet things and we've seen these entertainment reporters. They're not, they're just sort of seen as like staff. They're not really taken seriously. I think that when we've met a lot of these celebrities, even under the sort of press junket kind of environment, they've, I don't know, they've approached us a little bit differently than sort of the others. You ever get that sensation? Yeah, that's a good point. I've never, I've never thought of it that way. I'm, I'm not sure how they approach the, the Hollywood reporters or whatever. I, I, I can't report on that, but it is true that, you know, when, when you go there and you, you tell them like, oh, what is it that you do? I write about watches. Okay, and and I write about watches and only watches. And they're like, oh, okay. And that's when you see a spark of interest sometimes in, in the eyes of people because why would you why would you do that? Like <laughs> write only about watches? Like, oh my God, you have to be like a little dork or something like that. But then again, it resonates with some people because it, it shows dedication to to a craft or a trade. Oh, so you think that they're like perplexed by us? Like, who are you? Totally, totally. They are like, who okay, are let's, you guys? Let's, let's talk watches to the extent I can talk watches, which they immediately maybe innately know and recognize to be less than <laughs> what I could talk watches. And so so we start discussing watches and, and they and they really open up. And that's, that's just great. If I told them, oh, hey, I'm here for Hollywood Reporter or whatever, then then that's a different thing and i think sometimes these guys and and also the ladies like they, they are more open with their responses you know you can get like some really cool stories out of them whereas if i i told them that i'm i'm, I'm writing for a tabloid that would never ever happen so let's talk about sort of the last person right now and that's someone yes. we both got to meet um it's arnold schwarzenegger Yay. and we met arnold schwarzenegger not not in sort of the typical way that we've met any of these other people um, that was hilarious. This it was, was such an amazing most, meeting. It was amazing. It was a very interactive meeting. So I, you have to back up for a second. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger has been a watch collector since at least the 90s, probably the 80s. He's a known watch collector. He's known for companies that have made watches for him. He's known for owning a certain type of watch. He likes really big watches. He's known for just being an all-around you know, appreciator of the luxury timepiece in, in a lot of different ways. Mm. And he's been very important to cer certain brands. Um, you know, I'd say that probably the most popular one he's, he's known for helping is Audemars Piguet. 
And there's, you know, three or four watches basically named after him or related to his characters, like for End of Days or, or Terminator. Um, mm-hmm. He is an extremely important person in the watch industry because he represents a certain class of person who's really into watches and that validates watches. You know, it's like if, you know, if the most important person in, in a certain, you know, community, entertainment community is like really into stamp collecting, people are like, oh my God, stamp collecting. We got to figure out what's up with that. It's got to bring a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. So he's part of the sort of system that creates a mystique around being a watch collector that I think is generally appealing to uh, a lot of people that are trying to figure out like, why should I be into this? So we get news that Schwarzenegger is basically involved in a new brand. That's an Arnold Schwarzenegger brand of watches. And I am like, I'm not given any pictures or anything like that. I'm like, what the F this is, this is nuts. The people that were making it were out of Brazil. I think it was the company called Magnum. And what they had been doing was producing a lot of watches for the Brazilian market. And one of the first questions we had, I remember you and I talking about this, is like, Arnold Schwarzenegger go to any freaking watch brand and be like, make watches for me. Like, and why did he choose this one? And do you remember what conclusion we came to? What, what was it? Well, he wanted to make watches that were distinctive. Like, he was a watch person. He didn't just want to make, like, a different color version of someone else's thing. Like, he wanted to have his own brand. And, you know, I, I you know, he sort of alluded to that, but that's really what I got because if he went to like Audemars Piguet, he's like, okay, make something totally from scratch for me. Especially at the time, maybe today would be different, but at the time, can you see them saying yes? No, they'd be like, sure, if you want to pay for it. Yeah, that's different. If you guys, if you Google um, Arnold Schwarzenegger watches or, or watch brand, <laughs> a blocked watch is the first one to come up. Actually, one of the first images that comes up is Ariel and, and Schwarzenegger from this meeting, the, uh, the picture that I took. And if you go to the article, you will see all these crazy, crazy looking watches. Just absolutely insane. They were nuts. So, okay. So we're told, you know, Arnold wants to meet you. And Arnold is Mm -hmm. not meeting every watch um, journalist out there. He didn't have like a whole list of meetings. But, you know, I think one of the most impressive things that I eventually realized about him is that in addition to his, you know, status as being a, you know, a seasoned celebrity, he's also a trained politician which gave him an amazing ability to just be likable and, and handle a room in a way that's so freaking impressive. But let's go back to it. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, watch brand, guy who has good taste, and he's here to unveil his watch brand. And I mean, you, we saw the watches. What, what were we thinking when we first saw the watches? I mean, again, we're, I, I especially, such a mega fan of him, respect. And when you saw the watches and you and you felt the way you did, what what was your reaction? I was like, uh, my reaction was me telling myself to take four steps back before saying anything because it's not this watch obviously is not for me or not for for any of us for that matter. And and he said that he was like, all these guys, you know, the, the these these amazing bodybuilders who are just really unbelievably pumped, you know, they need large watches and they need. Brash watches, you know, they they can't wear a 45, not even a 48, 48 maybe, but they can't wear like a 45 or a 42 millimeter watch. It just looks stupid on them and ridiculous. And these guys are just over the top in every sense of the word. And so they needed a collection. And that's where I recall him telling us the, the market was for these watches, the bodybuilders across the world. And they need 
crazy looking watches and crazy looking watches these were well they were crazy looking watches and in their own way they were inspired by like his most popular films and characters and things like that but they were like they looked like they were souvenirs into the arnold schwarzenegger universe they didn't look mm-hmm. like anything that he would actually wear those characters would actually wear it was like the disneyland version of his watches it, it did have a disneyland <laughs> wife to it that's right so you what know? did you feel what did you feel when you when you first saw this I don't think we actually talked about his watches at all. I think that was the funny thing. Like, he didn't seem to ask, like, what do you think? Like, he didn't... No, he specifically asked, what do we think? Did he? Yeah, I, this meeting was like five years ago, but I, I specifically remember. I was. I remember specifically I'm... not answering directly. At least I remember that. <laughs> well, that's, that's fair, but I... I but was, that was, I was such a like... short part of the meeting then, because I, I really yeah. don't remember so much of the meeting being about his brand. But he was he was genuinely interested. He was like... He was not like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was just a merchant, you know, showing Yeah, he was just a business guy being like, what do you think about these products? Yeah, exactly. And that was just such a shock. Okay, Mm -hmm. you know, now then I remember. I mean, I had to be diplomatic because I'm like, I love this man. Literally love this man. He's got, he's like done everything on the guy bucket list. Like every single thing. (laughs) From like save the world to destroy aliens to pick up like the heaviest gun possible. The travel in time. (laughs) Like, you know, in the real world, he's done like everything masculine you can think of. I mean, freaking from space aliens to Conan to like being a Kennedy, like, like insane. Yeah. And he's got watches that I don't want to wear. And I felt really bad about that. And mm-hmm. I basically said, you know, I think these are not really for us. I think you'll be able to get there, but I think they'll sell to this like large population of, you know, Arnold brand fans out there. And I think yeah. we all agreed, like, Enough of those would have sold, but to like his luxury buddies, you know, if you're like Arnold's buddy, like you'd buy one of his watches to joke and wear it around every single time. Be like, look at this beautiful, amazing, (laughs) you know, like that's what I would do. I would mercilessly make fun of him as his buddy, you know, that would be fun. And I feel that like at some point he's like, he's like, oh my God. Like, especially especially because it would look ridiculous on you because these were like the smallest watch was like 45, but blown up even even at 45 it, it wasn't like the size that was 48. the issue you know it wasn't the size they were really well, big but it was that <laughs> like it was just they okay this way. at smaller dimensions would you have worn them <laughs> no okay well, then what are you talking about the size <laughs> because the size is more ridiculous even more ridiculous than the, the, than the styling i mean i remember the guy, I, I shook hands with him and I was like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but, but, you know, it was, it, was, it was a cool venture. I was glad that it appeared to be happening, which it ultimately didn't. We should, it we didn't. Should that. I, I, but you know, the thing is, thinking about it, how I want one of each of those watches, just for like, <laughs> like nostalgic sake. Bear around your ankle or something or your thighs. <laughs> like, I mean, look, they were big, yeah. but again, he's the person who had this reputation for going to brands and asking them to make like one-off large versions for him. Yeah. That's fine. What, one thing, one thing to his credit that I like is that these were watches priced between 500 and $2,000 basically. And, you know, so, so it was, it was not like, Oh, I will go to AP and have them make like, you know, all these large watches or whatever. No, he realized that, you know, for, for his fan base, his global fan base, if he wants to sell them a watch, they must not be stupid expensive. And these weren't. So, so that, was, that was a plus. But he himself was incredible. Polite, interesting, uh, articulate, 
I've ne- like it's so good to have someone. I mean, I grew up watching every one of his movies over and freaking over again. Mm. And you meet someone and you're nervous because you're like, all you basically want to say is, I'd love to be your friend, but I know you have no interest in me, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you just don't want to act like a schmuck. Yeah. And also at, at our be point, a burden. Well, we you don't want to be a burden. We don't want to be a burden, but also we've met people that have not necessarily been nice to come across as being kind of weird and standoffish. We met those people. So I'm like, I don't want all my childhood experiences to be ruined because for whatever reason, he's having a bad day and I say the wrong thing to him. Yeah. But he totally validated my childhood loving him. Like totally did it. And that's not, that's not easy to do because, um, you know, breaking the fragile ego of a fan can be destroyed, like d- highly destructive. Yeah, exactly. But that didn't happen. And that's, that's a big plus. So I think we have to close this discussion soon. But this was this was a high note to to end on for sure. So we've met a lot of interesting people through watches, others that we haven't necessarily mentioned. Those are just some of the interesting stories of people that we've, you know, sort of encountered not really trying to. It's like just in the course of doing what we're doing, like we met Arnold Schwarzenegger at Basel World, which is a watch trade show we were already going to. It was just like another meeting, and like, you know, Arnold wants to meet with you. And like, that's gonna be the highlight of my show. And that absolutely made my week. It absolutely made my week. Um, 100%. And it's one of the weird fringe benefits of being in the watch industry. So the bigger picture of superlative is that being into wristwatches and appreciating the culture of collecting them and designing them and making them and inspiring them, it's so much bigger than just you know instrument you wear to tell the time. It's, it runs so deep and those are the things we want to talk about in each one of the episodes. David, thank you so much for joining me on this particular superlative discussion about some of the important people we've met. We'll have to have more of these. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, follow along, subscribe, and all that good stuff. And we'll see you on the next episode of Superlative. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?